Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. As the temple is burning to the ground, he turns his trust to the Lord. You probably noticed as we read Psalm 74, it's, it's raw. It's a psalm of one who's, who's grieving. Difficulty is pressing down upon him. The emotion of the psalm stands out from the starts. Oh God, why have you cast us off forever? This is how he feels. As you look down through the psalm, it becomes apparent, it seems to be describing the destruction of the temple. You saw those phrases as we read it. There's one there in verse 3, they've damaged everything in the sanctuary. Or in verse 4, they roar in the midst of your meeting place. Or verse 7, they have set fire to your sanctuary and defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. Or verse 8, they have burned up all the meeting places of God. As we look back in history, it does seem to be describing the destruction of Jerusalem and the burning of the temple that took place in 587 to 586 B.C. In three separate deportations, Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar, a name that you remember from the Bible stories, right? So we're now into the history of prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar had come with his army and in three separate deportations starting in 605 BC began to destroy Israel and Jerusalem and to take captives back to his own land. The book of Lamentations for instance was written by Jeremiah the prophet during this time weeping over the destruction that was taking place in Jerusalem. If this is the right occasion for the psalm, then this must be a different Asaph than we studied last week. You remember Psalm 73 last week? A psalm of Asaph. Asaph was a member of David's worship leaders. And so likely that psalm was from the time of David's life. This must be either a different Asaph or a descendant of that same Asaph, which sometimes they did. They looked back to you know, their, their great-grandfather or whatever it was and used his name here. We don't know for sure. Maybe it was the same Asaph writing this kind of a, as a prophecy of what was to come. But I think it's written by someone who watched it happen. I mean, you can just feel the emotion of this. And so think about the discouragement that would have been associated with this destruction. One commentator mentions that the temple symbolized the presence and protection of God. Over the, the history of Israel is where they looked to, to be reminded that, oh yes, God is among us. He dwells here. The Holy of Holies represented his presence. It was just before those deportations, we could read about it in Ezekiel chapter 10, that as a part of God's chastening of his people, he actually left the temple. 
What the people had missed and didn't understand because they were ignoring the prophets is that God's presence was not in the temple any longer because they had turned to idolatry. So the people, as they watched the burning of the temple, they had the, burn, the, the burden of knowing that God had warned them that this was coming if they did not repent. We could read in Jeremiah, we could read in Ezekiel, the, the warnings of God to the people of Israel, oh, turn back to me from your idolatry. Repent of your sin so that this evil doesn't come upon you. But they would not. So not only is this the burning of the temple, but they have the burden of knowing that it's their own fault as well. Their unrepentance had led to the destruction of Jerusalem, the captivity of God's people, being taken from the promised land that God had given them years before. Just try to imagine the discouragement. You know, evil happening to us from outside of us is one thing. But it's almost more deeply gut-wrenching when we know it's our own fault. And we've caused it. And so here they mourn what's happening in their land. Asaph weeps over the destruction of the temple. When evil destroys what is good, look to your king of salvation. This is what Asaph does, this writer of the psalm. He does this for us in the psalm. He, he begins with this lament, and it's raw, describing what he's watching as the temple is being destroyed. But verse 12 is such a great turn. There, at the center of the psalm, is this praise to God. For God is my king, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Asaph chooses to trust the Lord. In the midst of this trouble. And then he finishes by begging the Lord to be at work. So even when we see evil destroying what is good. Look to the king of salvation. The first thing Asaph does in verses 1 through 11. Which is really the first half of the psalm. Is he brings his lament to God. It begins and ends with questions to God. You see it there in verse 1. Why have you cast us off forever? Asaph feels like it's been forever. If this is after the destruction of the temple and the first deportation was in 605, that means it's been about 20 years that this kind of Babylonian oppression has been going on. And so certainly feels like a long time. Verse 10 and 11 return to this idea of questioning, O God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will they blaspheme your name forever? Why won't you take out your hand? (laughs) He's asking God to come with power and to stop this evil. So what we learn in verses 1 through 11 is that it's good for us to bring our lament to God. As we watch what is evil unfold before us, We can still turn to God and lament before him the evil that is taking place. Now we have to understand this in the appropriate context. This is all for God's glory and respecting his word. We know that God hates what is evil and loves and upholds what is good. And so when we come, we're not accusing God of wrong. We're not tearing him down. We're instead saying, Father, we know this to be true about you. You are good and you hate evil. And so bring this to an end. This is not pleasing to you. 
This is what Asaph does. Just walk with me down through these uh, cries of lament to God as we understand what Asaph is talking about. Verse 1, why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Asaph knows that this is not just about Babylon, but this is about Israel, the sheep of God's pasture. They've been unrepentant, idolatrous. And so he knows that this is God's wrath on them for their sin. Verse 2, he asks God to remember them. This looks back to the time that God had purchased them. These are redemption words, probably talking about God's redemption of Israel out of Egypt. That redemption terminology often looks back to that. And in fact, in the second section of the Psalm, 12 through 17, that's exactly what Asaph looks back to. He looks back to God's redeeming them out of Egypt. Uh, He asks God to help them, the tribe of his inheritance. And then he references Mount Zion where you have dwelt. That's a reference to the Temple Mount, the place of God's dwelling. Verse 3, he asks God to lift up his feet. This is almost saying like, get going. Move your feet to save us. He wants God to come and to help. He laments the enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Verse 4, Rather than hearing the preaching of the priests or the prophets, what Asaph hears is the enemy roaring in the midst of the meeting place like a lion set on destruction. Rather than the temple being the banner of the Lord, verse 4 says, now it's a banner for Babylon. They've set up their own flags and signs in the temple. Verse 5 draws this picture of them as, as men with axes chopping down trees. Just wildly going after the vegetation. And so verse 6, we see where the axes are actually being swung. They break down the carved work all at once with axes and hammers. You can read about that beautiful carved work in 1 Kings chapter 6. This temple had been something that God had given instructions, you remember, to Solomon to build this temple in, in beauty and covered in gold and wood, decoration, and God had empowered even men to help with that process. I mean, it's hard for us to even imagine how beautiful that temple had been. And here, these Babylonian enemies are taking their axes to the woodwork. Ah! Oh. Have you ever worked on a precious piece of woodwork, an old piece of furniture or something like that? And, you know, you try to care for it and and all of that, right? And then somebody leaves a a glass on it and there's that water ring that turns up on the wood. It's just gut-wrenching, isn't it? Imagine the woodwork of the temple as these men take their axes to it. Verse 7, it says, They've set fire to your sanctuary. They've defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. What was once a holy place, only for the purest to enter, has now become a place of defilement. And every bit of it is affected all the way to the ground as the fire burns it down. Verse 8, it's clear to Asaph, they've done this from their hearts. This is wickedness. They want to destroy All hope from Israel. And so they burn up all the meeting places of God in the land. Not just the temple, but any other, any other sacred place. They've burned those down as well. And worst of all, the temple itself. 
Verse 9, Asaph laments that there's no sign for them. There's no prophet. And after the destruction of the temple, it's likely that by that time, all the living prophets had been deported to Babylon. And so this writer may have been one of those left behind. The scriptures tell us that Nebuchadnezzar was intentional about leaving some behind to farm the land and so forth. And so we can kind of guess that maybe Asaph was one who was left behind. All the prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, they had all been taken to Babylon. And so he's lamenting, there's nobody to give us hope here in the land anymore. Now, is there anyone among us who knows how long? Now, interestingly, Asaph's actually wrong on that count. Jeremiah, with a prophecy from God, had told the people that this would last 70 years. But it's understandable that that word had not gotten to this writer. He hadn't heard it. Jeremiah was one of the most ignored prophets in history. So there are probably many Israelites that hadn't listened to the word of God through Jeremiah and hadn't heard that this would last 70 years. And so Asaph, not knowing what's going to happen, cries to God, how long will this go? We don't know. We have no one to tell us how long. Verse 10, how long will the adversary approach and blaspheme your name? And then 11, we talked about, will you draw out your hand, your right hand, God's hand of power to put down the enemy? So Asaph is bringing his lament to God. And you can feel his pain as he cries out these things to God. As evil destroys what is good, he brings his lament to God. It can be hard to watch a nostalgic place be torn down. I had this happen twice in my life. Um, My elementary school, I went there for first and second grade. And during my third grade year, they tore down the old portions of the building and built new. And so for my whole third grade year, we were uh, bused to a different elementary school Uh, So they could do this construction. In the fourth grade, we were back in the new building. And we watched as the old had been destroyed and taken away. It was less than a half a block from my house. I walked to school every day. And uh, so, you know, could just get out to the end of my driveway and just about see uh, the elementary schools. Not far, just around the corner. So torn down. The memories, right? The classroom where I had had first grade, you know, and the great teacher, all these things, right? The memories, they're gone, and it's just this new place. Well, I, I moved past that and got to junior high, and you'll never guess what happened there. <laughs> they tore down South Middle School, the old building, right? It had this funny-looking cardinal. That was our mascot painted on the wood floor. And I still remember part of the fundraising. You could, you could buy a brick, you know, from the old building. Or you could, they were even had, they did like an auction. And you could win that wood cardinal. And, you know, you receive that. I didn't win it, nor did I buy a brick, right? But another nostalgic place. And so then the next year we went to the new building. Maybe you've watched as old places are torn down. Previous Homes or previous places that were special to you and it just gets old and it's torn down. Imagine the temple of God. The, the, possibly the most ornate structure in all the world at that time. I mean, we read in the Bible the way this thing was constructed and built. 
And the Israelites, yes, they'd been disloyal to God and worshipped other idols and so forth. But still, it was this monument of strength in their presence. And they watch as the enemy tears it down. Asaph brings his lament to God. It's good and right for us to lament to God when when we see Evil temporarily prevail over good. We don't have to think hard to see those things around us. Reports of child trafficking, wars between nations, abuse in homes, hatred toward the innocent, oppression of the weak, internet scams costing people their life savings, laws protecting sinful activities, diseases that debilitate and destroy death itself. It's right for us to lament the evils that are in the world and to cry to God over them. But then there's also the evil that you and I create. In anger, we destroy a material possession or worse, a relationship with someone else. In jealousy, we turn away from God and waste his resources on frivolous purchases. In lust, we look at pornography, commit adultery in the heart, hurting and harming those around us. In rebellion, we try to escape our challenges or emotions by turning to substances like alcohol or marijuana or others. In our murderous hearts, we speak words of hatred and insults which tear down others and destroy. In our sin, we burn our worlds to the ground with our evil actions. We harden our hearts so we don't have to admit that it's our own fault. In both of these scenarios, when evil seems to win the day, Whether it's directly our fault or just generally the fault of sin, we must turn to God. If it is our doing, then we turn to him in confession and repentance. The scriptures are clear. This was the whole point of the Babylonian captivity. That Israel would turn their hearts back to God. Where we say to God, Lord, what have I done In my sin against you, I've brought evil and destruction in my own life and the lives of others. Forgive my sin and help me to walk in your ways. Give me strength to make things right with those I have injured and harmed. If it is evil, not directly related to ourselves, there's still a place for lament to express to God that this is not how he designed the world. This is not pleasing to him. And we cry for his help because we know that he is good and that he hates evil. We ask for his help in our own hearts to abhor what is evil and to cling to what is good. And so we must be careful to lament to God appropriately. We're not merely complaining. Our cries to God are to reflect his word. In our laments, we are opposed to evil and for good. It's not venting to God. We're not simply saying what we want. We're reflecting God's heart in our cries. And it is always for God's glory. 
Instead of, Father, what are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. How could you? It is, Father, I don't understand. I know this evil is not pleasing to you. You hate it. Please help. Please stop the evil. Bring what is good and glorify your goodness. Asaph does this in verse 12 by turning to the God of his salvation. Down to the very rhythm and syllables of the psalm, verse 12 lands in the direct center. And I think that's intentional. It's the key to the psalm. He says, For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Even as Asaph watches the temple burn, he lifts his smoke-filled eyes to his king of salvation. And he hopes and trusts in God. And what's amazing is that he didn't even know the prophecies of Jeremiah. That God would bring the people back. That God was not forsaking them. That this would only last 70 years. He doesn't know those things. And he still lifts his eyes and trusts the Lord. In verses 13 and following, he begins to list some of the ways that he's seen God's salvation in the earth. I think 13 through 15 reference God's redemption of of Israel out of Egypt and his protection of them in the wilderness. But it does so with some metaphors. Verse 13 says, You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the water. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. The beginning of verse 13, we can understand, sounds like the parting of the Red Sea, doesn't it? You divided the sea by your strength. I think that's exactly what it refers to. The parting of the Red Sea when Israel was trapped and Egypt was on one side and then God allowed them to escape through the Red Sea by parting the waters. What about this about the sea serpents and Leviathan? Well, actually, in two other places in Scripture, in Isaiah and then in Ezekiel, a contemporary prophet, the Pharaoh of Egypt is referred to as a sea serpent. And Leviathan is sometimes used as a metaphor. It was a real creature in Scripture. But it's also sometimes used as a metaphor for something evil and of great power. So I think here it's talking about Egypt and Pharaoh in the form of a metaphor. So God divided the sea and broke the heads of the sea serpents. Egypt entered the divided Red Sea, and the waters came crashing back down on them and conquered their army. He broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces, and here's what's interesting, gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Who are the people inhabiting the wilderness? Israel. And where did they get their riches and food when they left Egypt? From the Egyptians. So it was God's conquering of Egypt and redeeming of his people that ended up feeding them and helping them in the wilderness. And so I think Asaph is looking back to a former enemy, Egypt, and remembering that God saved us from Egypt. God can save us from Babylon. Verses 15, verse 15, excuse me, references, I think, the, uh, the water coming from the rock in the wilderness. You broke open the fountain of the flood and dried up mighty rivers, the crossing of the Jordan, maybe that second part of verse 15. 
But then in 16 and 17, he looks all the way back to creation. God's salvation isn't only in recent history with Egypt. He looks all the way back to creation. Notice what he points out. The day is yours. The night also is yours. So God created the the turning of the earth and the rising and setting of the sun, all these things. You've prepared the light and the sun. You've set all the borders of the earth. You've made summer and winter. God is the one with power over all of creation. What Asaph is doing here is he's remembering God's salvation in the past. Not only do we come to God in lament, but number two then, we remember God's salvation in the past. Asaph looks back to the the redemption of Israel out of Egypt and all the way back even to creation. He may even be thinking of God's promise to Noah after the flood in Genesis 8.22 where God promises and says, While the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. God is the one who holds the universe together. He owns the days and the nights, the summers and the winters. God owns it all and controls it all. And even his sustaining of creation, the days and the seasons, are part of his care for mankind And so Asaph lifts his eyes and looks to God and remembers that God is his king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. It is good for us to look back and remember God's salvation. If you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you certainly can do that. In fact, God has given us ordinances to help us with that, the commands of Jesus Christ. We often partake of the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the month, where the bread and the juice help us to remember the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us and rose again. Today, we get to watch and observe the ordinance of baptism, which also is a gospel reminder. As we watch, as a believer in Jesus goes down under the water like the death of Christ's death and burial, and comes up again in the likeness of his resurrection. What's it reminding us of? Our salvation. God intends that we look back and remember our saving God. So that when we see evil around us, we can lift our eyes to him again and remember that he is a savior. It's what he does. And we can trust him. Creation itself is a reminder of this. Sometimes when you are weighed down by evil, a great thing you can do is to simply look at creation. If you can't look outside, then to look at pictures of creation. If you can't see, then to smell or to listen or to touch. To take in with your senses the vast, beautiful world that God has made. And when we do that, we remember that we are quite small in the grand scheme of things. There's a large, powerful God that keeps the seasons going and the days and nights turning And that even this night we are in will turn today. It's kind of like the questions that God asks Job. Do you cause the sun to rise? No. Do you decide the length of the night? No. Do you cause the changing of the seasons? No. We have a good saving God who does these things. 
There's also an important time to look back at your own salvation. And it may be that you've never trusted in Christ as Savior. You've never experienced God's salvation. That offer is available to you today. God has sent His Son. He's shown His saving character by sending Jesus to die in your place and rise from the grave. Having paid for your sins, you are offered salvation by faith to simply trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And your sins can be forgiven. And you receive the righteousness of God and peace with Him, hope for eternity and an inheritance forevermore with Him. If you've trusted in Christ as Savior, then remember your salvation. He saved you while you were still a sinner. He knew all of your sins, past, present, and future. That means that you can't do anything that will surprise him. Even the new evil things that you do, God knew about them when he sent Jesus to die for your sins. He gave his son for you. This guarantees his faithfulness and goodness in your life. Because of Jesus, you will never experience God's wrath. Jesus drank every last drop of the cup of God's wrath, and then said, it is finished. You only experience his grace and his goodness. There may be evil upon you, but friend, look to the goodness of God. Cry out to him and cling to his goodness seen in his saving works in the past. It may even be evil because of you. Look to his faithfulness, guaranteed by his salvation, and repent. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. We come to the final section of the psalm in verses 18 to 23, and here Asaph brings his request to God. He asks God to help. And so you have phrases like, remember this, O God, do not deliver us to the beast, and so on and so forth. These are requests. And so what we learn number three today is that we can ask God to work for his glory. You'll notice in these verses that this is, yes, for the good of Israel, but it's also based on the glory of God. Asaph says phrases, like you see in verse 22, Arise, O God, plead your own cause. Show your glory. Do what is good and right. So in verse 18, he asks God to remember, they're they're reproaching, they're blaspheming your name, O God. This is about God's glory. Do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beast. This is a comparison. Asaph is seeing Israel as God's turtle dove, as precious, kind of helpless animal. And he says, don't turn the turtle dove over to the beast, which would just devour it. The beast being Babylon in this case. Don't forget the life of your poor. Remember us. Have respect to the covenant, verse 20. That's probably looking back to the Abrahamic covenant. God's promise to Abraham to make a great nation of him and to bless them. What's interesting is that even in the prophecies of Jeremiah about this event, God says very clearly, I am not forsaking my covenant. In fact, it was God's love that was calling Israel back to himself. God uh, actually says through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32 verse 42, Thus says the Lord, just as I have brought this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good I have promised them. God was not forsaking his covenant. He was chastening them back to himself. 
So Asaph asks God to remember the covenant. The second half of verse 20 is like he's imagining the wicked hiding in all the dark shadows of the earth. And so he asks for help in verse 21. He asks God to arise in verse 22 to take action against the foolish one who reproaches him. These shouts of reproach were probably coming from the temple itself where cries of worship had once been offered to God. And so in verse 23, in conclusion, he asks God to remember to put an end to the rising and increasing iniquity and tumult that the Babylonians are creating. It's right for us to ask God to work for his glory. But that phrase, for his glory, is important. As we come to God in lament and in prayer, we ask him to do what is good, but we must remember that God knows what is good better than we do. And even here, what seemed like a horrendous evil act, God was using for good in the history of Israel. As a part of his plan for them, as a way of even glorifying himself. Sometimes what we really need is not what we want. What we really need is for God to display his glory. Because he is perfect, good, kind, and just, and merciful, there's nothing better than God displaying his nature, his glory in the earth. This is always a safe prayer. Father, glorify your name among us. So many times we want something else, and so we get frustrated with God when he says, No, what you thought was good is not actually good. I'm doing what is good, the Father says. We just want our circumstances to change. Lord, change their heart and take away this trial. I don't want any more. And it is good and right to express those desires to God, but at the same time to trust that he will do what is glorifying to his name. And to ask for that. God had actually given the answers to Asaph's questions here. How long, O Lord, will this endure forever? God had told his people, it will be for 70 years and I'm calling you back to myself. And I'm keeping my promise to be good to you. Though Asaph had not heard that prophecy of Jeremiah, he still turns to God. And it's a good reminder for us that there are times in our lives where we just we don't have all the answers. We don't know that it's just going to be 70 years or that it's all part of God's good plan for us. We can't see those things. And I, I appreciate that Asaph still turns to the Lord. It's a good reminder for us that God knows all things. And we often don't. And it's important that we still turn to him in faith as we see in Asaph here. It's also an important reminder to go to the scriptures. Jeremiah's prophecy had not yet been written down, but it's interesting to imagine how Asaph's laments may have been different in some ways had he been able to read Jeremiah's prophecy about the captivity and so forth. And it was convicting to my own heart, and maybe to yours as well, to think that in Our times of suffering and difficulty when evil presses upon us, the scriptures often aren't the first place I turn. 
to, to open the word of God and remember the truth about God and remember what he has said and to remember his promises which never change. Take a fresh look at the promises of God. Remember what his character is like and as evil destroys what is good, look to the king of salvation. Bring that lament to him. Remember how he has saved in the past. And ask him to work again for his glory. This is how we address the evil situations of life. Let's close in prayer. Father, we ask for your help. We thank you that you are a saving God. And so today we lift our eyes to you. Remind us of your salvation. And as we feel the weight of the evil around us, may we hope in your precious promises. May we look to your salvation. May we rejoice in your victory. Even today, as we get to watch two baptisms, may we praise you for your salvation and leave here a people rejoicing in you, our King of salvation, our King of old, working salvation in the earth. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.